You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Throughout history, humanity has asked the question, which came first? Hey, watch it, buddy. Oh, my apologies, but I, I was before you. What? There's no one before me. No, earlier. I mean, I lay a feather to mark my place over here, and I'm eager to try out this new vegetarian restaurant because it's the first to serve animals, you know. Uh, so, pardon me, if I could just no get by... No way, Mac. They're giving out a free incubator to the egg that shows up before 8 o'clock. You're not getting ahead of me. I wasn't hatched yesterday. N- nor were you here when I was the early bird. So, now, please just let me pass and... Listen, uh... drumsticks, I said get back. But what if we shared it? Shared what? The front of the line. Both of us in one spot? This ain't quantum physics. You know, you're as obtuse in intellect as you are in morphology. Hey, this is all muscle spindle legs. Yeah, well, at least I have legs, you ellipsoidal, undeveloped half-wit. Pretentious dust bather. Uh, That's a rumor. Some arguments about who's first may never be resolved. No way, Baldy. We do know, however, that this is our wheel alone. I'm Seth Chasta. And I'm Molly Bentley. Wrangling for first place is as important and contentious in science, discovery, and in invention as it is in other areas of life. Maybe more so. The first to reach the pole, the first to find an elementary particle, the flight of the first airplane, discovering the first dinosaur, or a new life form, the first life form. Defining the firsts is what allows us to tell the story of science. Although such well-delineated moments don't apply to biological evolution, we often hear references to the first biped, the first toolmaker, the first human, but... When you call something the first human, you imply that a Homo erectus female at some point gave birth to a Homo sapiens baby, and evolution doesn't work like that. Makes sense. Consider, when were you first an adolescent? Leslie Lusco, a paleontologist at the University of California at Berkeley, says that biology and paleontology are rife with discussions about the first human or the, the first whatever, which misses the point of the nature of evolution. Honestly, I think it's a little bit misleading. And we use the concept of first just because of the way our language works. And so we categorize things so that we can talk about them. But so then language is static. But evolution is a dynamic process. And so you hit these points where this static language just doesn't do service to this dynamic process. So the first human is one example, but perhaps the first biped or the first tool use or that sort of thing? All of that. It's it's just a little bit confusing because it makes it sound like there was a time when one person stood up and started walking on two legs as we understand it. There's a really cute book, a children's book that was written by Mickey DeLenz called Gacky Two Feet. And in that, you've got these hominids, and they're all walking around on four legs. And then one, Gacky, of course, stands up and just starts walking on two feet. And that's a really cute story, but that's not how evolution actually happened with bipedalism. We published back in October the discovery of Ardipithecus ramidus, or Ardi is the skeleton. And from that skeleton, we could actually see what the earliest evidence of bipedalism looks like. And it isn't bipedalism the way we think of it. These things could still really climb well in trees. So it just shows that there's transition. Bipedalism doesn't just happen overnight. So what you're saying is that we're using a very very limited terms to describe something that is really, to describe a process that is really a continuum. Exactly, exactly. And so then where you make those delineations is in some ways arbitrary. Well, when we do talk about the first humans, and I should say scientists refer to the first humans as much as the public does or science journalists do, uh, what are we really talking about then? 
Well, what we're really talking about is the earliest appearance of a fossil that looks like an anatomically modern human. So, for example, we've got a skull from Ethiopia from a place called Herto that dates to about 160,000 years ago. And those skulls are the earliest evidence that we know right now of anatomically modern humans, of Homo sapiens. But next year, we could find one that's 200,000 years ago. So it's really that first appearance of that earliest fossil, but it's just based on the, the available evidence that we have right now. Well, what sort of arguments and misunderstandings come about when we refer to things or a fossil as the first human? The dilemma with this that we have broader outside of this scientific discipline is that in society today in America, there's a lot of confusion over what evolution is and what evolution is not. And I think a lot of people are uncomfortable accepting evolution because they're not really sure what it is. And so when we use terminology that is simple and easy, but yet we know it's a little bit misrepresentative, it's actually doing a disservice to the science and to society's understanding of that science. Well, when I think of the picture of human evolution, I, I picture a tree, and then you have all these branches, and you have all these individuals on those branches, these certain points. It might be Lucy or Artie, the, the newest skeleton that's been found, or whatever it might be. Is there a better device or a better metaphor that we should picture in, instead of this tree with these branches? A tree is a wonderful way to think about it, but that's actually a great way then to step back and think about how language uh, forces us to to divide a tree up into categories, but where exactly on those branches are you going to draw a line from this is a Homo erectus and this is a Homo sapiens? Yeah, we do have a definition of what a human is, and we have a definition of what Homo sapiens sapiens is, which is modern human. Right. But the dilemma is you also have some fossils that, for example, this skull from also from Ethiopia from a place called Bodo, and it looks in many ways very much like a modern human, and in many ways much more like Homo erectus. And so probably not the kind of guy you would want to be friendly with in an alleyway at night. So not sure you'd want him in your species, but yet he's not a Homo erectus either. So again, a, a transition. But is there an agreement that evolution does proceed in this gradual way, or do you have the sudden appearance of a trait? This is a really interesting debate within the academic discipline because what you see is some people arguing that evolution happens in spurts and so that you'll have episodes of, of stasis so animals will stay pretty much the same and then there'll be some impetus that causes change to happen very rapidly and then you'll have another period of stasis. And then you have another camp within biology that argues, no, um, that evolution is more gradual and that you actually do see clear, clearly what we call phyletic evolution or this gradual evolution from one species into another. And I think that argument really comes down to what level of detail that you're looking at. For those of us who are studying human evolution, we're looking at just really the last six million years, which on the evolutionary timescale is just a blink of an eye. It's not very long at all. And so many of the, of the scientists who argue that you have these episodic periods of, of really rapid evolution and then stasis, I think that they get that interpretation because of the nature of the fossil record, that it's patchy, that you know we don't have a representation from every generation throughout the millions of years of evolution. So it looks much more broken up than perhaps what it would have been had you been living for that one million years watching the change happen. You know, I mentioned Homo sapiens and that we do have a definition for what Homo sapiens or Homo sapiens sapiens is. What is it? And, and how does it contrast to, say, Homo erectus? Ah, well, it was Carl von Linnaeus who actually named our species. And the definition that he gave is one that we probably would not use much today because it's based off of personality traits. But today, we, when we're looking at fossils, in the paleontological record, when we find a skull that has a cranial capacity within the range of modern humans and that has, you know, doesn't have big eyebrow ridges, that has fairly gracile features on the face, so, you know, thinner facial bones, then that, that we put into our species. Some of that sounds rather subjective when you said has slightly smaller facial features. Well, one of the other things you run into is variation. And so biologists argue quite a bit about ranges of variation. And so we define species based off of having a, a group of individuals that recognize each other as potential mates and will mate 
of the time with each other to the exclusion of another population of individuals. But the, the question is, you know, you can't do that with fossils, right? I mean, we can't put fossils together and see if they recognize each other as mates. So what we're forced to do is to look at a known species and assess how much variation we see in their anatomy and then extrapolate from that when you're looking at a fossil assemblage, is this too much variation relative to what we know to modern population, modern species, or is it too little, too much? You know, there's a subjectivity there that just requires a, a very well-educated interpretation. And it's difficult to make those contrasts because the fossil record is limited. And an example of that that's come up recently is the discovery of the fossil of Homo florensiensis. This fossil was found on an island in Indonesia. And the debate was, did this fossil discovery constitute a new species, or was this diversity, an example of diversity within this continuum of um, Homo sapiens, or was it Homo erectus? It depends on who you ask, actually. And that just goes to illustrate that this was quite, was actually quite contentious at the time. I don't know how it's been settled, but the whole debate was, was Homo florensiensis a new species? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it's a really interesting debate. And one of the things that you'll notice if you listen to scientists when, you know, if you go back and hear what scientists were having to say when this was first announced, the first question out of every paleontologist's mouth was, is there more than one? because then that tells us that it wasn't just one individual who perhaps had a pathology, you know, like a mutation, so they were, they were ill in some way, or was there more than one? And so if there's more than one that, that has the general features, you know, similar to each other, then that suggests that there may have been a population like that. And in this case, when you refer to the pathology, it was that these fossils suggested that the people were quite short. And I think there was more than one. Yeah, there are other other pieces, as I understand. Well, not only was it quite short, but it has an incredibly small brain size. Um, and there there is a condition within modern humans called microcephaly, and there's many different ways to get microcephaly because it just means you have a small head. I'm speaking with Leslie Alusco. She's a paleontologist at the University of California, Berkeley. Now, this next example may be one that fits into this debate of that some things in evolution may appear suddenly, or more suddenly, it's always relative, and others others argue that it's always a continuum. But what about the emergence of something like consciousness that some people argue is a collection of all of these different changes? And then once you have a certain critical mass, then the brain turns on and you have consciousness. How does that fit into your ideas of first and not first. There is an archaeologist from Stanford named Richard Klein who has proposed that there was a mutation that led to our elaborate culture in the sense of this concept of a, of a culture gene and a mutation that, that resulted in the elaborateness that we do. I have a hard time as a biologist accepting that because, first off, you know, going back to your specific question with consciousness is, how do you define consciousness? You know, what, what does that actually mean? And how does our consciousness distinctly differ from, say, chimpanzees? And what we keep finding is that as there are more and more cognitive studies of great apes, they do a lot more than we realize in terms of things that we may label consciousness. The other dilemma to this question is, how do you recognize that in the fossil record, which is where we would be able to actually test this idea of, does it appear very suddenly, or is it a gradual appearance in the archaeological and the fossil record? And there's a big debate about that. So Richard Klein would argue that you see it very suddenly, but there are other archaeologists working in East Africa who argue that the way they interpret the evidence is that it doesn't appear just suddenly you know, more complex tool kits and assemblages, that you see it happening more gradually and um, much deeper back in time than what Richard Klein would would interpret. So, Leslie, have you ever been the first to discover anything, I have to ask? <laughs> Depends on what you describe as first. <laughs> Every time you find a fossil, you're the, the first person to have seen that bone since that animal got deposited in the, in the rocks. And that's a pretty remarkable first experience to have, I would assume. Which is one of the reasons it's a fun job to have. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Leslie Lusco is a paleontologist at the University of California at Berkeley. Up next, new images of the first, or nearly the first, galaxies. And when you're talking cosmic time, well, even the almost first is impressive. It's Who's on First on Are We Alone? I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Welcome back to Are We Alone? Well, cosmology can claim the ultimate first, the Big Bang. At first, there was just a bright flash and a sea of particles. Then for hundreds of millions of years, blackness. But things began to get interesting in our early universe when the first groups of stars came into existence. The first galaxies followed. And now new powerful telescopes are giving us an unprecedented look at them. It always fascinates me just how interested people are universally in our origins. Our Milky Way is, in a sense, our home galaxy. And so the question for a lot of people is, how did the Milky Way come about? It's hard to pinpoint the birth of the first galaxy. After all, we don't exactly have a filing cabinet of galactic birth certificates that we can shuffle through. But what we do have are powerful telescopes and cameras that can look far, far away and long, long ago into the early days of our 13.7 billion year old universe. Garth Illingworth at the University of California at Santa Cruz led a team of galaxy hunters who used a new camera on the Hubble Space Telescope to peer back farther than ever before. We're actually looking back a little over 13 billion years, so getting back to within five or 600 million years of the Big Bang itself. So we're going back through 96% of the life of the universe. So imagine, if the universe were a human being, we'd be taking pictures of it as a toddler. A toddler universe festooned with the first galaxies. But these galaxies aren't spiral galaxies like nearby Andromeda or our own Milky Way. So if you got up close, they would look like a nebula, rather fuzzy and so on. Very blue with bright stars scattered through but tiny compared to the Milky Way or the Andromeda, probably only 1% of the size, the total size of these galaxies today. And that's because the material that's going to form these galaxies still hasn't joined the party, or is it because they haven't smashed into other sort of proto-galaxies to bulk up a bit? I mean, you know, why are they still small after 600 million years? It's actually both of those aspects that will lead them to grow into the big galaxies we see today. In the very first instance, the only objects that formed in the universe were unusually bright, massive stars. But these would have formed in a dark matter halo with other gas, and that gas in turn then, within a couple of 100 million years, started to turn into more and more stars that formed these first little blobs of light and mass and gas that we now think of as galaxies, but very different galaxies. So if I were to somehow make a voyage to one of these galaxies, not likely because, uh, after all, they're, they're long gone. <laughs> these are baby photos, and the babies have grown up. But, it, but if somehow in my imagination I were to go to these galaxies and I looked around at the stars, they wouldn't be like the kind of stars we find, you know, in the neighborhood of the sun or like the sun, for that matter? No, they would be typically much brighter, much bluer. They're bigger, heavier stars. But there are stars in our galaxy like that. There are regions where birthplaces of stars and groups of stars that are very similar to what we see in these distant galaxies. But many more stars are actually forming in this violent burst of star formation at these early times. So it would be a much more dramatic event. Any of the stars in these very early galaxies, these very young galaxies, might have planets too. Earth-like planets, rocky planets. 
It's hard to know. They may well have planets around them, but albeit, I imagine, rather different, especially around these very bright, luminous stars. Different from Earth, that is, because these bright stars are burning in young galaxies that just don't have the raw materials to make a planet like Earth. They have very little in the way of the elements from which uh, our rocky Earth is made and which we're made of. And so at this time, even the planets probably were much more gas giants like Jupiter and the outer planets in our solar system. The rocky planets probably came later. Now, photographing the early universe, I mean, it's not exactly a point-and-shoot operation. I mean, we're talking about a real technical tour de force here. It takes a very sensitive camera and a very long exposure to capture light from more than 13 billion light years away. We took four days with an open shutter, so a long exposure by our typical camera standards. I would say four days, yes, I've never made it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Only when my camera broke and the shutter wouldn't close again. Right. <laughs> This new camera on Hubble isn't a typical camera. The light that it detects, we can't even see it. It doesn't affect our retinas. It's near-infrared light at slightly longer wavelengths than the longest wavelength we can see. Now, because of the expansion of the universe, we have to look in the infrared to see anything at all. These objects are so far away and rushing away from us so quickly that the Doppler effect, remember that from high school physics, stretches out the wavelengths and pushes the visible light from these galaxies into the near-infrared. If we went deeper into the infrared, into the infra-infrared, so to speak, we could look even farther back in time. Yes, we would love to be able to do that. And that's one of the reasons that we are waiting so enthusiastically for the James Webb Space Telescope to be launched. It works further in the infrared. It's a larger telescope. It's placed out beyond the moon where it can go very cold, so it can be incredibly sensitive. And so that's the telescope that will really let us understand more about these galaxies and push back to when some of the first galaxies were born. How far back do you think that might be? I think we'll be able to go back to within a few hundred million years after the Big Bang into the period when the first stars are being formed, the first galaxies are very much being formed. And so it's a very crucial period in the life of the universe, sort of the birthing of, in many ways, galaxies, just like our own and like others around us. Garth Illingworth is an astronomer at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Everybody's heard of Alexander Graham Bell of the Watson Come Here fame. Where is that guy? But have you heard of Elijah Gray? Probably not, although he may be the real inventor of the telephone. Ring, hello. Alexander Graham Bell was interested in new audio electrical technology. You know, things like the telegraph, buzzers. Buzzers? Yeah, any electrical device that could make a tone. He was developing a harmonic telegraph, which could simultaneously send multiple telegraph messages over a single wire. And, and multiple means more than one, you know. Then there's Elijah Gray, an inventor who was also working on a device that would transmit sounds telegraphically. So very similar to what Bell was doing. That is, they were both edging closer to making a device that could replace telegraph messaging with speech. So instead of Watson hearing in Morse code, he'd hear a human voice. Watson, can you grab me a hot cider? Got it. Okay, so the race was on. They were working, working, working really hard. And now let's leap ahead to the U.S. Patent Office on Valentine's Day, 18. Both men pull up in front of the patent office to file the requests for what was essentially the first telephone, as this was 1876. <laughs> yeah, but some think that Bell cheated. With help from his lawyer. At the last moment, Bell's lawyer added to his patent application an idea that was really Gray's, a liquid transmitter, a variable resistance. See, Bell's lawyer realized that these things were important, that Gray was onto something. <laughs> And frankly, without these technical additions, Bell's telephone might not have worked. But Bell got to the patent office first. Well, no, not exactly. Gray got to the patent office first, before Bell. But his application sat at the bottom of a basket, waiting until a filing fee was taken care of. 
Bell apparently had a better lawyer, as we heard, who got the fee paid right away. And so Bell's patent application rose to the top and was approved. Patent 174465 was granted to Alexander Graham Bell on May 7, 1876. The patent for the first telephone, but not to worry, you know, Elisha Gray was awarded more than 70 patents for his other inventions. Still in all, that's history the way we learned it. But not how we might imagine it. Uh, good morning. Not open yet? Soon. It's after nine. Hot beverages, coffee... Lovely day, if not brisk for February. Yes. Uh, Bell's the name. Uh, how do you do? Gray. Quite a stack of papers there. It's quite an idea. <laughs> <laughs> Get your coffee here. Hot cider. Really cold. Perhaps a coffee. No, can't afford the jitters today. A hot cider, then? They'll in any minute I'll hold now. your place here. Well, Bell, was it? Here's a quarter. For me, too. Would hit the spot. I'll be but a moment. And I'll be here. All right. First applicant, please. Good morning. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Are We Alone? In the pantheon of stories of scientific firsts, some say Alfred Wallace deserves a more prominent place. Wallace was a 19th century British naturalist, explorer, biologist. Sound familiar? And like Charles Darwin, he conceived the idea that species are connected and newer species descended from older ones. But it's Darwin who's credited with being the first to come up with natural selection. Has Wallace been robbed? We turn to Sean Carroll, a molecular biologist and geneticist. Sean, I'll just ask you straight up, who was the first to come up with the theory of natural selection? Charles Darwin. Hang on, Sean. Want to reconsider your response? I mean, Wallace did think of it, too. It was Darwin. Are you sure? No doubt about it. And there's documentary evidence that Darwin's voyage completed in 1836. And a short while after that, he came up with the idea of natural selection. That's long before Wallace ever ventured out as a naturalist. But that's not the end of the tale, because the story of Alfred Wallace and Charles Darwin is not just about being first or second, although maybe about who publishes first, but how often things happen at the same time in science. Like Alexander Graham Bell and Elijah Gray, which we heard about earlier. The remarkable fact that a concept such as natural selection that hadn't occurred to anyone despite thousands of years of human cogitation popped out so suddenly and in such a short period of time, only 20 years. The epic story of Wallace and Darwin typifies that historical crossing of paths and is told in biologist Sean Carroll's book, Remarkable Creatures. Alfred Wallace was an enthusiastic collector of uh, insects and other items of natural history interest, and he was motivated, hated his day job, he was motivated to go travel parts of the world where the collecting might be rich. And in 1848, he set out with his friend Henry Walter Bates for the Amazon. As I said, he's an amateur, so the only way he was going to be able to even pay his expenses was to collect duplicates of the specimens he was getting and to ship them back to England for sale to either other collectors or to natural history museums. So he had this all arranged through an agent, and that is what paid his expenses for four years in the Amazon. Well, this was a remarkable trip. He traveled through the Amazon for four years. This is before he went to the Malay archipelago. We'll get to that in in a moment. And he spent three months with yellow fever. A number of things happened. His ship caught fire. Can you just tell some of those stories? So so he, over the course of, so after about a year, he and Bates split up. They, They said it was to cover more territory, but it probably meant they're getting on each other's nerves. And Wallace made his way about 2,000 miles upriver, up the main trunk of the Amazon, up the Rio Negro, and then up a tributary of the Rio Negro. And he was further inland than anyone had ever gone. 
European anyway. But he realized that he had to turn around or he might die in the jungle. He was suffering from both malaria and yellow fever. He was exhausted. Food had been scarce. Travel was really difficult. He was also taking care of live animals. He thought it would be a great idea to bring back these treasures of the Amazon to the London Zoo. So he had about 30 live animals with him in in cages that he was feeding every day, everything from woolly monkeys to macaws. And uh, so completely run down, there was a great risk that, that he would in fact die in the jungle. So he decided to turn around, head back home. This is now after four years of collecting. He had stored various boxes of specimens uh, various places along the river. He collected those up, made it all the way back to the coast of Brazil, found a British ship heading home, boarded that ship, and it was about four weeks out of port. It's about 700 miles east of Bermuda. The captain came to his cabin and said, I'm afraid the ship's on fire. Come and see what you think of it. So Wallace, who was still sort of regaining his strength and recuperating, was bewildered at first, but he followed the captain to the hold, and sure enough, it was smoldering and could erupt into flames at any second, and and Wallace realized there was no time. So he raced back to his cabin. All he could do was grab a little tin box, throw in a few notes and drawings, head for the lifelines, and lower himself to the water to get in the lifeboats. And In fact, he slipped on the lifelines, burned his hands, hit the salt water, and then he paddled over to the lifeboat, climbed in only to discover it was leaking. That's quite dramatic. I'm surprised Hollywood hasn't made this into a film yet. Now, now there were all these animals on board. What happened to the animals? They all perished. So when he was in the, um, as he was in the lifeboat, he could turn and watch, and he saw the, the ship catch fire and sink with all those specimens and his live animals. And he was in an open lifeboat for about 10 days. So, you know, the, he couldn't really dwell too long on what he had lost. He had to think about survival and being in the open Atlantic in 1852 in a lifeboat was not great odds, but after about 10 days, he was picked up and returned all the way to England. And you might think after that experience, he would have sort of sworn off the ocean. In fact, he wrote to a friend in Brazil and said, you know, 50 times on the voyage home, I swore never to trust myself on the ocean again. But once he got to England, he realized he didn't have anything to show for his four years in the Amazon, and he decided he was going to go back out again. And this time he picked the Malay Archipelago. Okay, so he has this incredible courage and determination. Now, let's just establish Darwin had written down privately his theory of natural selection about 10 years before this or 15 years before this. That's right. So unbeknownst to Wallace, Wallace had no idea of this. Darwin had conceived this by about 1838, uh, natural selection quite clearly by 1838, had written it down first in about a 35-page sketch and then about a 230-page essay by 1844. He started sharing this with a few scientific confidants, such as the botanist Joseph Hooker, eventually Charles Lyell, Thomas Huxley. So there were people in scientific circles who knew what Darwin was thinking and had read this material and knew what work he he was doing subsequently to try to test some of these ideas. But Darwin was reluctant to publish. He knew that he would be in for a tremendous storm. Everyone from his mentors that trained him at Cambridge and that sustained his courage during the whole long voyage on the Beagle to his wife, Emma, who was devoutly religious. And so he was reticent and um, remained that way for a very long time. And this discussion of the origin of species was circulating in magazines and pamphlets and books in the mid-1840s, and this caught Wallace's attention. And so Wallace, when he went off, he did think that he was going to gather facts towards the question of the origin of species. So he, he did have this as an idea in mind that he wanted to test by collecting. Okay, so he did have these scientific questions in his mind, and the whole concept of, I mean, this was a very big question at the time, where did species come from? It's one that maybe we take more for granted today, but (laughs) but some of the ideas that they came up were quite bold in the end, because the question was just unknown. Well, the question was unknown, and those who had taken a stab at it had really no respectability, and they had sort of made up ad hoc arguments, and there was sort of a mixture of pseudoscience and, and armchair speculation, and so... And because this idea was not welcomed by either the scientific hierarchy or by the public or by the people in power, such as the church and government, you know, Wallace knew this, but Wallace went out to see what he could gather. And on this island-to-island voyage of Malay Archipelago, he started gathering an important pattern of evidence. Okay, so he's out in the area that is now Australia and Asia, although I guess it was then, too. <laughs> right. He lands He lands in Singapore, and he starts working his way west to east. He's going to be on Sumatra and Java, Borneo. He's going to work his way across a lot of small islands all the way to New Guinea. 
and he's going to be there eight years. He's going to make almost 100 island crossings covering about 14,000 miles of ocean. He collects, I think, over 120,000 specimens. So imagine what that was like in the 1850s, you know, how, how traveling was difficult, how getting food was difficult, how these places weren't well known at all. But Your Wallace... laundry services would have been minimal, <laughs> probably. Yeah, quite minimal, at, yeah. At that time. Yeah, we talk about these eureka moments in science, but it's important to realize that a lot of work goes into scientific discoveries, and this is a great example of that. And this was a trip in which he started to make some discoveries. In fact, it was on this trip or maybe it was later that the Wallace Line was established. What is right. the Wallace Line? Well, the Wallace Line was, was one of his early discoveries, which was as he made his way west to east across these islands, it was actually just crossing just from the island of Bali to the island of Lombok, he started to realize that there was a big changeover in the animal life that he saw. And whereas on the western islands he saw things like tigers on Sumatra and orangutans and monkeys on Borneo, he saw things like marsupials in these eastern islands. He saw things like tree kangaroos in New Guinea and the Aru Islands. And he said this doesn't at all fit with the idea of special creation, the prevailing idea of the time, which was all species were created by God and placed on earth in this habitat that best suited them. He said, you know, why would you put different kinds of animals in essentially the same kind of jungle? And he started thinking, no, there must be another explanation. And his explanation was actually an idea he had come up with a couple years earlier that species came up in association with pre-existing species. So he saw that the marsupials of the east were more closely allied to the marsupials of Australia, the you know, big hoppy kangaroos that we're more familiar with, and that the mammals in the western islands were more like other Asian mammals, tigers and monkeys and things like this. And so he saw that there must be a natural explanation for the distribution of animals on the planet, at least this part of the planet. And that line that Wallace, in fact, said there's almost as though there's a line running between the islands that separates the sort of Asian type of animals and the Australian type of animals. And that line we still refer to today as, as the Wallace line. And and how do we explain the difference of those animals today on those different islands? Really, Wallace's explanation, he thought that what happened was that these islands might have been joined at some time, the water might have been shallower, that sort of thing, and that now as they've become isolated, the animals adapted to the circumstances of individual islands. You know, what Wallace had also observed, he made a set of observations very similar to Darwin, which is as he went island to island, he noticed, for example, he remember, he was a paid collector. The way he made a living was collecting things that other people wanted. So he would collect the most spectacular stuff, birds of paradise, for example, or butterflies. And the butterflies of the Malay Archipelago, there's a spectacular group of butterflies known as bird-winged butterflies with giant wingspan and really lush coloration on them. And so collectors wanted these. Well, as Wallace went island to island, he realized that, yeah, there were bird-winged butterflies on many of these islands, but they were slightly different from one another. And really the same eureka moment that Darwin had when he realized the birds of the Galapagos Islands were slightly different from each other was that why would you have slightly different species on nearby islands? So he was convinced that species changed, and that, of course, was the same leap that Darwin was taking, which is species were changing over time and adapting to the circumstances they found themselves in. And also that they were all connected. I think he says like the branching of a tree, all these species were connected. That's right. So the, the best way he said of depicting uh, you know, the relationships of species was a branching tree. He, he wrote that in a scientific paper in 1855. So Wallace was definitely on the right track. And we can see this, not just notebooks, we can see this. He's submitting publications. He has none of the reluctance that Darwin has to divulge his ideas. He has nothing to lose. He's thousands of miles away from Britain. Nobody knows who he is. So he's just, as he has these ideas, he's just dashing them off to scientific journals and magazines as they occur to him. So we have papers from 1855, 1856, 1857 from Wallace that all contain important kernels of insight. I'm giving you these years because it's 1859 before we have the origin of species. So why is it, if he's doing all of this writing, and, and you describe this in your book on the chapter devoted to Wallace, uh, he's sharing his writing, he's sending all these papers off, he isn't constrained at all, as you said. Why didn't someone on the other side receiving these papers say, oh my gosh, look what he's hit upon, this is big? Well, this may be, especially for a modern scientist, the painful truth that not necessarily <laughs> anybody's paying attention. I think that, that few, if anybody, was paying attention. I think Charles Lyell was noticing a little bit, and he even sort of said to Darwin, you know, you might want to keep an eye on this Wallace fellow. And in 1857, Wallace and Darwin started a correspondence. But, you know, there was not much of a, a worldwide, you know, scientific community at the time, so people weren't really noticing. These things were just sliding into journals and... and um, 
and forgotten. And that's really even true right up into the sort of pivotal moment in 1858. So Wallace has these ideas and he realizes species change and he wants to think about how that happens. And it occurs to him one day in a malarial fever. He's he's wrapped in a blanket on like an 88 degree day on the island of Ternate. And this sort of stream of consciousness set of ideas occurs to him that species change by this process of how slightly different forms either uh, increase in number or decrease in number, but those that are slightly better off will increase in number. It's really the same nub of the idea of of natural selection that Darwin had. And once his fever cleared and he he wrote this down very quickly, he thought, well, I'll go publish it like everything else he'd been publishing. He thought, well, I'll just get this. I want this vetted by somebody. I want to check this out first. So he sends his scientific paper to Charles Darwin. Uh oh. So Darwin receives this in roughly June of 1858, and it's a, as Darwin says, it's a perfect abstract of the idea that he'd been working on for 20 years. And Darwin realized that he better get moving. That's right. Although Darwin's not in, in the best position to get moving at the time, Darwin's distracted because his youngest child, Charles Jr., has has scarlet fever, which has hit the village. And in fact, by the end of that month, Charles Jr. dies. And so he left the matter of the paper to his friends, Charles Lyle and Joseph Hooker, because Wallace had asked Darwin that if he thought there was merit in the paper to please pass it along to Lyle for publication. So Darwin did. And what Lyle and Hooker decided, privy as they were to Darwin's thoughts over the previous decade and a half, they thought the best thing to do would be to publish Wallace's paper along with some excerpt from what Darwin was writing so that the ideas would be presented together at a scientific society, the Linnaean Society in in London. And so they were presented July 1st, uh, 1858. Well, that sounds fair. Does that sound like a fair way of sharing the the credit for this discovery? Well, everyone can draw their own conclusions. I mean, remember, Darwin had shared this with other scientists. Wallace had asked Darwin, you know, if you think this is worthwhile, you know, would you pass it on for publication? So Darwin had done that. And so Hooker and Lyle thought this was the best thing to do. But, and you know, and we can come around to this. You know, perhaps the best judge of whether this was fair was Alfred Wallace. Now, Wallace wasn't asked. It, was, it, took a, it would take a while to, to ask Wallace, well, can we do this, and is it all right with you, et cetera. You'd have to send a letter to the Malay Archipelago and wait for Wallace's response, and that letter would have to find him, where, whatever island he might have moved to in, in between. So they decided the best thing to do, in their judgment, was to present the, the two ideas together. Now, the way it unfolded, no one paid any attention at the Linnaean Society either. So while that was the public debut of the idea of natural selection, it made no dent. But Darwin did really step up the pace on finishing his great book, and it was another year, November of 1859, when The Origin of Species appeared, and now everyone paid attention. So if I can sort of move the story forward from there, you say, well, what, how did Wallace really feel? Well, they maintained, Wallace and Darwin maintained a correspondence, and Darwin immediately sent Wallace a copy of On the Origin of Species once it was published. And in that book, right away on the first page, he mentions Wallace's observations, And then Wallace, we have this copy. We have Wallace's copy of On the Origin of Species. It's in the Natural History Museum of London. And Wallace reports that, you know, he went through this book maybe five times over. And his margin notes are all there with exclamation points. Yes, 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 you know, and things like this. And I think the best insight into how, was this all fair, was how Wallace felt. And Wallace wrote several of his most intimate friends, Henry Walter Bates, for example, the friend he had gone off to the Amazon with. He wrote him a letter. And he said, you know, I've just read Darwin's book, and I just don't know who to tell the admiration I have for this piece of work. And he said, I don't think there's any branch of science that ever owes as much to a single man as we owe to Darwin. And he felt that he never could have pulled off the public presentation of the theory in the way that Darwin did. And really, together, they worked to promote this idea and to stimulate naturalists to work on this idea of of natural selection and, and the evolution of species. And it was referred to in their day as the Darwin-Wallace theory. So Wallace had a lot more credit, maybe in those first 20 years while they were both alive, than he has a century after his death now in the 
early part of the 21st century. Now, Sean, had you been his friend, a contemporary of Wallace's at the time, is this what you would have counseled him to do, to sort of sit back, um, not try to claim more of the credit or more of the glory, continue to hold Darwin in high esteem and and be graceful the way that he was? Or would you have said, hey, get in there and, and try to claim more of the credit? And, you know, he would never have published if it hadn't been for you. What kind of a colleague would you have been? Well, you know, I think the hardest way of answering that question is that the when you use the word gracious, Darwin, Wallace, and Bates, these were just really good people. They were very considerate, very thoughtful, very kind. To some degree, each of them was self-deprecating. And so in the customs of those times, Darwin carried himself so well, Wallace carried himself so well, Bates carried himself so well, and they had genuine affection and respect for each other. And I think part of that came from their experiences in these long voyages. Anyone who had traveled far from England, as all three of them had, understood what each had gone through, the long years of separation from family, the physical hazards and things like this. So I think there was just tremendous respect and affection among these men. And so jockeying for credit was not... I think top of the agenda. I, I think Darwin, when he when when the Origin of Species was published, he had presented a masterful synthesis across so many fields, you know, geology, biology, anatomy, and argued things so well. It was clearly the work of a long distillation. And I think Wallace thought, well, I have a seat at the table. I, I earned that seat with my own voyages and my own scientific contributions. But I don't think Wallace was particularly concerned that he shine as brightly as Darwin or even outshine Darwin. I think he was content to sort of tip the hat that, that Darwin was the, the bigger naturalist. And remember, he was senior to Wallace. He had written uh, Voyage of the Beagle. He had written uh, his Coral Reefs book and things like that. So Darwin was an was a extremely well-known naturalist at the time of the publication of On the Origin of Species. So well, to some degree, he was also being deferential to his, his senior. Now, I know historians can be skeptical of the what-if game, but had there been no Alfred Wallace, what if there had been no Alfred Wallace, would The Origin of Species have been published, and if so, when? Well, that's a tricky question, because Darwin, when he had completed a draft, about a 230-page essay in 1844, he told his wife, Emma, that should he die, please see to it that it would be published. So he was sort of willing to share his ideas if he was dead, but at the time, not while he was alive. Would she have honored that request? Because the ideas were in there. Natural selection was in there. The descent of species was in there. Now, had she not done that, then we wouldn't have had a single synthetic volume. And the ideas about evolution would have probably come piecemeal. You know, a little bit here, a little bit there, you know, maybe from different individuals, from different countries. You know, sort of a more of a patchwork of thinking rather than a grand synthesis. That's what we got with Darwin. We got a grand synthesis that had 20 years of thinking into it, 20 years of polishing of the argument, 20 years of experimentation to test things out and of writing people around the world expert in various fields to, to measure how strong these ideas were. So he dropped such a polished and well thought out synthesis. If we didn't have that, you know, it's not clear what we'd be talking about in terms of a theory of evolution. It, it might have looked just a lot more of a mosaic. Let me ask another what if. Let's say it, it was published, but without Alfred Wallace having prompted Charles Darwin, and Charles Darwin knew nothing of Alfred Wallace, would we miss Alfred Wallace's presence? Yes, because with his 12 years experience in the field and his discovery of things, for example, the geographic distribution of animals, which Darwin certainly acknowledged as a major contribution, yeah, we'd, we'd miss Wallace, I think, a lot. And also, remember, Darwin's evidence for how species changed, he relied a lot on domestication as an analogy. And so these naturalists like Wallace and Bates, who came back from either uh, the Malay Archipelago or the Amazon with whole fresh evidence from nature of how species changed, they gave some traction to that theory of evolution and, and help broaden its acceptance. So even if he had published the book, say, in 1857 and Bates and Wallace had come along, I think you know they still would have been seen as valuable scientists. I think certain phenomena that individually Bates discovered and that Wallace discovered, they, they would have been important. But probably Wallace would, would still not have you know quite the, the weight that I think he 
he has, or at least he should have, based on what he really did accomplish. Well, finally, Darwin's name is associated with evolution today. Sometimes instead of Darwin's theory of evolution, it just goes as Darwinism. And actually, this has posed a downside that maybe Alfred Wallace is happy to have escaped because Darwinism becomes interchangeable with evolution. And to some people, that allows them to dismiss the theory of evolution as a belief system because it's nothing more than Darwinism. Right. And I, and, I, and I think most of us feel it's a mistake. We don't refer to it as Darwinism. We don't refer to gravity as Newtonism, you know, or something like that. So I, I don't think that that uh, that's a useful way to discuss scientific ideas. And I think you also have to understand is that while Darwin laid a foundation, that foundation has grown in so many dimensions in, in the 100, 150 subsequent years that we really should be talking about a, a synthetic theory of evolution uh, you know, and, and I don't think it's constructive, you know, in, in historical ways, I guess you could talk about Darwinism if you're in sort of want to discuss 19th century, you know, terminology. But in the 21st century, we should be talking about the theory of evolution in, in, a, in a synthetic way that encompasses Darwin plus, oh my goodness, 150 years of geology and biology. You know, when you talk about time like that, it makes me think that time is relative, otherwise known as Einsteinism. <laughs> exactly. Sean Carroll, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Sean Carroll is a molecular biologist and geneticist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and is the author of Remarkable Creatures, Epic Adventures in the Search for the Origin of Species. And that's it for our show. Let me be the first to say thank you to the remarkable creatures that work on our program, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Sandra Chung, and Jay Weiler. And to the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where we hope to be the first to discover life elsewhere in the universe. to everyone who's waiting for the restaurant to open. I just want to announce there's been an addition to tonight's entertainment lineup. Along with the whole grain hot steppers, we do have Mr. Fox and his Foxy Five Swing Band. Doors will open momentarily. <clears throat> uh, perhaps I was a little hasty with this head of the line thing. No, no, you did arrive before me. Well, not really. I, I insist after you. No, no, wings before shells. <laughs> no, please. I couldn't possibly. I I'll be right behind you. No, I'll follow you. Truly, you go on in. No, I, I insist. You must go first. No, listen, I would feel so bad about just leaving the first in the line here. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.